Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Follin. Thanks for listening. This time, let's find out what it's like being freelance for app developer Jason Neen. Weird thing to say, it's quite a nice experience to sort of lose your business. But actually, it is quite a good experience because it completely changed the way I do everything now. All project managers should either have children or at least look after young children for a week. And then they'll understand what actual versus planned means. Because you can't predict day to day. I like to try and be in control of my day, but sometimes you can't predict that because things happen. It's more challenging because I'm at home, you know, so I've got an office in the back garden. The good side of that is I'm out of the house, but I am in the garden. So when the kids are off school, it's easy to get distracted. Yeah, so that's Jason, and uh, this is another episode of Being Freelance. Thank you very much uh, for joining me. You can uh, find... Do you you know what? I didn't even realise last week's episode was episode 90. Like, uh, there should have been balloons or something. Make sure. I should make a note in, like, nine episodes. I don't want to miss, like, the hundredth. Be rubbish. Uh, yeah, so anyway, yeah, 90. This is now 91 guests that you can go back and uh, check out. Hit subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you delve back into all of them because there's so much great stuff in there. The YouTube vlogging experiment that I'm doing continues. Yeah, I'm on like episode 17 or something of that now. I started it in December, managed to keep that going. It's basically documenting my freelance week, what I actually get up to. Um, So yes, I'd love it if you got to check that out as well. YouTube.com slash Steve Holland, or there's a link at beingfreelance.com. And yeah, just get in touch, leave a comment, tell tell me what you're up to. Uh, Right now though, let's go to Wiltshire and chat to freelance app developer. Jason Neen. Hey, Jason. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. No worries. So yes, Jason, also known as Bouncing Fish, which hopefully yes. we'll, we'll <laughs> talk about later on. But how about we get started hearing about how you got started being freelance? Uh, well, I, I've worked, I, I did work for myself from about 2000. We started a company, my wife now, but back then she was my girlfriend. Uh, we started the first sort of version of Bouncing Fish in 2000. We were working for a web uh, development company and we sort of decided that we wanted to do our own thing. So we started the first version of Bouncing Fish then and it was all web-based. So it was the two of us contracting through the business and we were working for NSPCC and we were doing loads of different projects there. And then after about six months, we sort of went it alone and basically had our business and just went out and, and got money. You know, we'd, we'd sort of built up some money in the bank and that was it. And we did that for nine years, ended up employing sort of 13 people, had offices in Southwark and it all got quite big. And then of course the crash happened and everything went badly wrong. So I then went back to sort of work. We, st- we got married, we'd started having kids. I went back to work and did a couple of jobs um, doing, I was a technical director of an agency in Basingstoke for a couple of years. And then I went to work for a dating company um, in Windsor and I was managing the uh, web development team, the uh, Ruby team and the Cold Fusion team there. Now, when I was at the first company, I was playing around. I'd, I'd, I mean, I'd done mobile for years. I'd done if you can call it mobile, I used to do um, programs on Scion organizers. Remember Scion organizers? Yes, um, like the Palm the, Pilot type stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was the Series 3, which was the sort of clamshell, little black and white grayscale screen. Um, then there was the Series 5, and the Series 5 was the, was the touch version. Um, so it had a little stylus. And you could actually, the, the nice thing about those devices, I mean, there was no internet back then. This was like the 90s. Well, there was internet, but you know what I mean? There was no World Wide Web. There was no sort of, um, it's not like it was now. It was all sort of, uh, I think it was ISDN connections or dial-up. And But you could code on the devices. So you could actually sit on a train when I was traveling to London, and I could 
you know, write apps and I could package the apps and you could um, copy them off and stick them in a zip file and then put them on a website and people could download them. So I was writing uh, launching apps and sticky note apps on the devices. You know, you didn't actually use the computers back then. There was sort of the capability to do that later, but it was it was really cool because I could just make my commute productive. And I actually made quite a bit of money, which was quite nice, selling shareware, you know, the sort of £10 in a as a cheque that comes through and you give someone a registration code. So I was doing mobile stuff right back then. Um, but then it all sort of switched to web and the web was the way to go. So we did all that. And then I, I did those two jobs. And in the first job, I started playing around with, um, you know, the iPhone had come out. It was all Objective-C based. And I started playing around with Objective-C and couldn't get the hang of it. Um, and basically learned this system that I use called Titanium, which was really early days back then. It was like 0.9 and it only worked in iOS. But it basically let you write JavaScript code and it would make it into a native app. So that's what got me into doing the mobile app development, the cross-platform stuff. So jump ahead to the second job and I was in the second job and I was doing some stuff on the side. Uh, so Bouncing Fish sort of still existed, but it was really just me. And I was just using it for doing some hosting and stuff for people. And I just had these full-time jobs, this full-time job. But on the side, I was doing the web, the, the mobile stuff. And I'd got a couple of, uh, I got a little uh, job that came through to help someone with some fitness apps, which was the Adrian James stuff. And the thing that kickstarted it all was basically after about a year and a half at this place, and, you know, in a normal, regular job and commuting for, what, two, two hours a day each way to Windsor, which was you know, a horrendous journey if it went wrong. And I was getting back really late and everything. Um, they basically said to me, look, you know, we need you. We need more time. We need you for sort of three months solid work initially to, to build the apps. And, you know, we had, what, three kids then. So I was renting a place in Wiltshire. We had three kids and that was the only source of income. So it was a big risk, big challenge, but I wasn't happy what I was doing. I wasn't being hands-on what I was doing anymore, which I really wanted to do. I really wanted to do mobile. And so that was the, that was the push that got me out. So I did the first three months. Um, I didn't end up continuing with them because what happened is I, within probably a month, I got more work coming in. And then from then I've just been freelance full time. So that was, that was end of 2012. So beginning of 2013. And this time around, is it still just you or have, you know, last time you grew to 13 people? Yeah. So I made, after what happened with the first company, it was, it was quite a nice, I mean, it's a weird thing to say. It's quite a nice experience to sort of lose your business, but actually it is quite a good experience because it completely changed the way I do everything now, way for the better. So back then, yeah, we, we just grew crazily. You know, as work came in, oh, let's get some more developers in. Let's get some more developers in. More developers mean more space. So suddenly you've got bigger offices, you've got more costs. And it got to this crazy point of just all this money needed every month to just sort of sustain this business. So what I, what I vowed I would never do is employ anyone again. I'd never have employees. And I certainly wouldn't have an office, um, you know, a rented office in a location where I'm paying for that service. So what I do now is it's just me in the business. I am the owner with my wife. So she's my partner in the business, although she doesn't do much hands-on stuff anymore with the development. But what I do do sometimes is I get help externally. So I don't do web stuff anymore. I used to do web stuff years ago uh, because I've been focusing on mobile now. You know, the web has changed so much in terms of the tools that are out there. I still can do a bit of, you know, .NET and ASP stuff, but there's so many more tools now that, and there's so much more resource out there. So if I do a project where I need some web work done, like a CMS or an admin or a control panel, I'll get help. You know, I've got a little uh, network of people and circle of people that I trust and use. So I'll just bring them into the project and they'll help me with stuff. And on the mobile side, sometimes I will architect the app, work on the basic framework, and then work on some of the sort of components and then get some help to, to, to put some bits together. But the majority of the stuff, it's just me. 
Yeah, so you've learned that actually you can be probably more profitable and less stressed than yeah. than if you have the big glory glorious agency sort of model. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's still lots of challenges. I mean, you know, you're working in a model where uh, you don't have someone sitting next to you. You don't have someone full time that you can throw work to. Um, so it's a bit more difficult if you've got someone that you, is helping you out and they're not available for a week and you've just got to plan around that. But you've also got the flexibility that you're not paying for someone for a week sitting there if you haven't got anything for them to do. Um, and it also means that, you know, you're relying on the fact that those people can be trained in other ways. They can learn other techniques and you can sort of pick and choose who you use. And so what it will be a case of is like looking at the projects that are coming up, looking at what help I need, talking to some people about whether they can help with it and what they'll do, uh, which is typically on the web stuff or maybe design and branding stuff. Um, and then, you know, scheduling that time in. But it does, you know, it's it's nice to be able to have the sort of. Uh, the estimates from people and you can plan for your sort of pricing and you can plan for the budgets and things like that rather than just you know having 10 people in an office that you've got to feed basically um, and trying to get the work in for them to do and how would you say you go about finding clients nowadays has it changed over time uh well i'm i'm crazily lucky at the moment so what happened was when I, it was, so it was end of 2012, I was in the middle of this contract. I think I'd started, I think I quit in the October, I think it was, October, November. So I was already into the, into the project and I think I was going to have to start, you know, the project would have been, I was assuming, you know, you always assume the three months you're not going to renew or anything and something else is going to happen. So I had sort of end of February to sort things out. So I remember on, it was actually my New Year's Eve <laughs> was just putting a quick web page up because I'd had the old Bouncing Fish web page for, well, forever. And it was quite interesting because the old Bouncing Fish web page was obviously, we were an agency. And even when we weren't an agency, and even if well, we call ourselves an agency, whatever, but even when it was just two of us, um, you know, we made out that we had, you know, all these people or whatever, we were a, a team. Um, and it's funny how I see a lot of freelancers do this, you know, they'll say we and it, they'll refer to themselves as an agency or in the plural, even though it's just them. And this is an interesting side of this story. So in, the, in all of the years of doing Bouncing Fish, we had, oh my God, I can't remember. I mean, it was probably less than a handful of people that came as came to us through the website. It was mainly referrals and some sales stuff that we were doing, you know, cold calling or whatever. Search engine optimization stuff was terrible. It was very rare that we would get any work through the website, very rare. So I took this website down, which was, uh, you know, bouncing fish, we are this, we are that. And it'd been sitting there dormant really for four years, four or five years. Um, and I, I bought, uh, I think it was bootstrap, Twitter bootstrap I used. So Twitter bootstrap set up and I bought a theme for about 15 bucks or something. And then I just modified that theme and tweaked it a little. And my target was, because, you know, these things, you always procrastinate. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to try and reproduce the whole website. I'm just going to do two pages, homepage, contact page. That's it. Uh, that's now gone to about four or five pages, but that's happened over years now. And that was what I focused on. And then the other key thing I did is, um, I, even though it's still Bouncing Fish, because Bouncing Fish had good rankings in terms of the domain name, and it was my business name, and I didn't really want to change any of that. But the key thing I did was I, I made it all about me. So I didn't use we. I just said I, you know, I'm this, I'm that. Put a cheesy photo up, put an about page with a sort of backstory, um, which sounds a bit cheesy, but people seem to like. And it's that whole sales thing. People love, you know, they like relating to people. They like seeing a person. They like seeing a face. They like reading a, a backstory that has some significance. So, you know, I've had people contact me saying, oh, I used to use an Amiga or I used to use Commodore 64. Um, 
And even as simple as me <laughs> saying when I had a dog and a cat, you know, I had a cat that thought it was a dog and a dog that thought it was a cat. The, cat, the cats unfortunately died now last year. Um, so I took that off. But you know, that even captured a couple of people. And, oh, I've got a cat like that. And it's really weird how that happens. And then you get these connections. And so I put this site up and I was already still working on this contract and that was all going on. And then I think literally it was like a week. Within a week I had an inquiry, which was just completely, you know, this is what's going on. <laughs> I haven't had an inquiry for years and all of a sudden I've got an inquiry through. And then within a month I'd had several inquiries. And basically what happened is I'd already lined up the next piece of work after this one. And then from that point on, it's got to the point now where, I mean, you know, I, I, I say that if you look at the SEO or whatever, I don't do any active SEO. You know, I don't go, I've got a little app that I check probably every few months or whatever. Um, and that will be mainly if I see a drop off in inquiries. But typically, I'll rank quite highly with search results. You know, if you look for iOS Freelance Developer UK or iOS Freelance Developer or App Developer, and, spe and especially with the local areas, you know, App Developer Wiltshire, because people are still very locally focused, you know, um, then I come up quite highly in the results. So I've been really lucky in the fact that I, I get a huge amount of inquiries for the website, probably, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 a week. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite incredible. Like we went away for Easter last week and I had five inquiries over the Easter weekend. And then you get these weird trends where it's like um, Sunday evening is quite interesting. So you get Sunday evening and you'll get Monday morning. <laughs> so it's, it's almost like people are like, you know, got to the end of the weekend and thought, got to go back to work tomorrow. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, I want to do that idea I've got or whatever. Uh, and you get the ones during the week as well. But yeah, I, I, so in that sense, I've been... I've not done any sort of re-optimization. And the only, the only thing I've done, which I get asked this by people, you know, what advice can you give? And it's always difficult because I've just got that one experience. And it's just making the site about me in the sense that it's, I'm not trying to artificially say anything to get search results. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not repeating Wiltshire a hundred times or app development a hundred times. I'm just naturally writing about what I do and describing what I do. But also just putting in where I am, you know, I live in Wiltshire and I work for clients in Andover and London and the US or whatever. And just with that natural way of, of, of writing seems to work. Um, and, and Google now is very clever. I mean, if you try and do meta tags and you try and be clever with your terminology, if someone searches for something and it's not in your meta description, but it's in your page, it will just pull up that anyway. It just it will just make up the search, you know, the, the preview in the search results in Google. So I don't try and game it. I just try and be. Um, natural about what I do and explain what I do. So that's worked really well. And then the other thing that was key, which again is a huge amount of luck really, is in the first few months of when I was properly freelancing. So those first probably sort of, I think it was probably February, March actually, because I think I did the talk in April. I'd always had this sort of idea years ago of thinking, oh, it'd be great if I could talk at conferences, but how'd you get onto that circuit? How'd you do all that? And I was tweeting and I'm quite an active tweeter. And I saw a tweet from a guy that I followed in Holland who said, I've had a speaker drop out of the mobile conference. Does, is anyone up for it? Is anyone up for taking over? And I'd never spoken, you know, I'd done sort of salesy stuff, but I'd never spoken in front of, you know, a few hundred people in a conference. And I just tweeted back and said, yeah, I'd, I'd have a go. I'd like to have a go. And, I, you know, I was absolutely scared out of my wits, but... <laughs> You know, it's, it's a challenge and it's something, it would be crazy not to take that opportunity. And so that, that got me onto that little circuit when you, because what, what happens and what I realized what happens is that when you speak at a conference, what will happen is another conference will come along and they'll look at other conferences that are going on and they'll look at speakers and talks and the reception they got and everything else. And so you'll get this natural instinct for other conferences to invite you along. 
And so that got me into being invited to other conferences to talk. And then I'm suddenly on that speaker circuit. And I'm not doing hundreds a year or anything. I might do a couple of talks, you know, two or three talks a year at a conference or something, or maybe one or two. But suddenly you're on that circuit. And then that's, and it's without trying to be, I hate to use the word like brand awareness or whatever, but you know, the phrase, but it's that sort of thing. You, you suddenly get on that circuit of being seen and known and, mm. oh, I've heard of him. It rings a bell, you know, and maybe the name of the company and my name and everything's unusual, you know, so it just sort of stands out a little bit. And that just helps um, get people more aware of you. But it's, you know, it, there's no formula. It's a lot of luck. But I guess the, I guess the only thing I could say is probably keeping it simple. You know, I kept it simple. And I didn't try and make out that I'm a bigger thing than I am. You know, I am, yeah. a, I'm a freelance app developer because that's the other thing. When people are searching, they'll say, oh yeah, I wanted to go freelance because I don't want, I don't, I don't want the cost of an agency. Now, obviously, you know, their, their perception is that a freelancer is cheap, but they're not, they're not necessarily, but it's just that, that perception of, oh, agency means they could have an office space. They could have loads of people. They, they, they're based in, let's say they're based in London. They're going to be very expensive. So I'm going to go down the freelance route. So it's important to get those keywords in there. Yeah, interesting. And how about how you show your your work on your site as well? That comes down to, well, a couple of things. One is, can I show the work? Because sometimes you end up taking on jobs where you might be subcontracted through a, another agency or another mm. company, and it's whether you can show it or not. Um, and what I've tended to start trying to do now is making sure that I can do that because the worst thing you can do is work for a company or work for an agency for a nice big client. And then you can't give that client, at least give that client name out because of some NDA thing, because you're the sort of secret developer in the background, if you like. Um, so it's, and it's, it's, it's always useful to have that conversation, you know, especially if you're being negotiated on price, it's like, well, okay, well I'll do this for this, but I want to be able to put it on my website, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it's a case of picking the right apps. Um, I try and pick apps that vary in terms of the functionality so that I can show different things that I've done. Um, I try not to show too many. I think I've probably got about eight or nine up there at the moment. And some of them are quite old, you know, a few years old. But I, it's, I try not to shove everything up there. It's just a sort of selection to sort of show the range that I can do. And it seems to work. Yeah, yeah. I like that as a negotiating um, sort of tactic to, to, to pull in. That's good. And uh, you mentioned you're speaking, but you've, yeah. you've written as well, haven't you? Yeah. So there's, um, again, this was another thing that I, I sort of, you know, thought it would be really nice to be able to do to write a book. And there's a company called Packet Publishing. Uh, you know, they have a clever model. You know, they contact people via LinkedIn or whatever. I think I got contacted by LinkedIn. And their model is that they want you to write a book. And obviously they're going to, you know, sell that book and you get a, a sort of initial fee for doing it, which is pretty low. Um, and then you get a commission uh, or, a, you know, a commission fee based on the, uh, the sales. But it's one of those things where I sort of knew what was going on. You know, I know these guys want to publish books and they want to get people to write them and they don't necessarily want to be spending huge amounts of money on authors. But equally, what I get out of it is I'm a published author with a book out there that has had some nice feedback and reviews and, and comments. And it just helps again, you know, it helps... It's all about, I don't want to say the brand awareness thing again, but it, it's all just part of the jigsaw. You know, it's another mm. thing that you can say, well, I'm, I speak at conferences, I'm an author, and uh, I think I got the, the actual, um, what was it, the London, the London app show, I can't even remember the name now, it was a couple of years ago. Um, it's in the big, in Excel London, big, big uh, app conference. And they invited me because of the book. So they saw me, they, they, they'd seen me, they'd seen the book. Oh, can you do a talk on app development and cross-platform cross app development? So that, that gig was purely because of all that. So all these sort of bits just sort of come together and end up helping people be more aware of you 
and give you greater significance when talking to people. And it, it you know, it makes a huge difference with work coming in as well, because, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm very lucky, you know, I, I get a lot of inquiries and it enables me now to sort of pick and choose what I want to do. So I don't, I don't have to fall into the trap at the moment and, you know, touch wood, it won't change of almost having to sort of beg for work or having to take on a job that I might not like uh, because I don't have any other options. So it puts you in a much better position with companies and clients where you can say, well, you can ask more questions, you know, about the work rather than say, oh, I'll take it because I need a paycheck. You can actually say, well, why do you want this? You know, why do you, why do you want to do this? Have you researched it? What's this offering that other services aren't? And sort of question it a bit more and actually help them a bit more because there's certain people that I've, I've sort of not, not turned away as in and, and destroyed their idea, but sort of questioned it a little bit and said, well, actually, maybe you could think of it like this because of the other stuff that's out there that's doing a similar thing. And it, it, and it can help people. When it comes to that, though, like when you've got all of those jobs coming in, how do you work around the whole saying no thing because it could be tempting to take on multiple projects at once which is possibly how you ended up with 13 people in the first place but you know you've got a family and and all of that and maybe they're exciting projects like how do you cope how do you deal with that yeah that's a tricky one and even you know even as a freelancer I've still made the mistake a few times of taking on too many jobs because as a freelancer that's the other thing you know you don't have a regular paycheck so you you're working project to project and the danger is is that you you know turn that project down and then don't get anything for two months or whatever or you take the you know or you take on that project and then suddenly an amazing one comes along and there's that danger of taking on too much work i mean one of the things i try and focus on is retainer based work because that gives you that sort of safety net so i've pretty much always had some sort of retainer based income from a client, either one or two clients, just sort of a few hours a week from one client, a few hours a week from another. And that sort of builds up, you know, and if you can get to a point where you've got sort of 20 hours covered a week on retainer for several months in terms of a sort of engagement with different clients and you've spread that risk over those clients, then taking on the, the odd project work is, is not that big a deal then. There's not that much concern because you could say, well, okay, I don't need to take in anything on this month because I'll, I'll just do the 20 hours or whatever I'm doing for these guys. Or you can do more side projects or pet projects or open source stuff. So I think the retainer thing helps. Just surviving on a sort of project-to-project basis gets a bit difficult. Um, if you do that, then it, coming up with the right payment structure and engagement structure is the way to deal with that because what you don't want to be doing is working for two months and not getting anything in the bank yet. You mentioned being a dad. How old are your kids now, by the way? Uh, they range from three, or about to be three, up to nine this year. Wow, okay. So, uh, so there's four, poor kids. You've, you've got four, crikey. So yeah. <laughs> how's the work-life balance thing uh, going for you? Uh, it can be tricky. I mean, it's, it's, it's challenging sometimes. I mean, I, I said something on Twitter the other day that was probably quite accurate to do with project managers and project management when you deal with project managers, which is that, you know, most project managers or all project managers should either have children or at least look after children, young children for a week. Uh, and then they'll understand what, you know, actual versus planned means uh, because, uh, you know, you can't predict day to day. I like to try and be in control of my day, but sometimes you can't predict that because things happen. You know, someone gets sick and you need to run the kids to work, school or whatever. It's more challenging because I'm at home, you know, so I've got an office in the back garden. The place that we bought and moved into has a sort of outbuilding um, that was basically like a, like a, it wasn't a shed as so. It was like a workshop. So it was bigger than a shed. It was like a cabin in the back garden. Part of it was sort of a little garden room type 
kitchen extent uh, kitchen overspill if you like for with a fridge and stuff and the other side was this workshop you know concrete floor um dodgy cupboards with tools and things and so i just got it all refitted as an office so i've got a full-blown office in the back garden and obviously i've got the tardis in the back garden which is the sort of outside loo um <laughs> and that's that's that was all so all that all that mechanism is in place for, for clients so if clients come over they don't need to go in the house they can use the facilities and i've got coffee machine and all that sort of stuff the good side of that is I'm out of the house. So I am, you know, a distance away from the house. I'm in the garden. There's a sort of barrier there, if you like, between work and, and play. Uh, but I am in the garden. So when the kids are off school or they're home from school or it's holidays, then obviously they're outside in the garden and playing around and jumping on the trampoline and trying to kill each other and all that sort of stuff. So it's easy to get distracted. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I sort of have, I'm not one of these people who does this whole, I get up at six and do this and do that. You know, I get up in the morning and take the dog out for a run, sort the kids breakfast out, take the dog out, come back, help get them on the, in what we call the bust, because <laughs> there's so many <laughs> of them, to get them to school. Then I sort of freshen up and everything and then start work, which could be nine, it could be half nine. And then it's just cracking on with the day basically. But then what will happen is there will be natural interruptions. Uh, I mean, the kids don't come back from school till sort of the afternoon, but I might have to, you know, prep something for, for dinner or something. And I've got my youngest is, is not school yet. So she's at home um, with Hannah. So, you know, she'll be around or whatever when I'm going in for a coffee and things like that. So, yeah, there's interruptions and there's things going on. But also because I've got clients in the US as well, there's that time offset. So what can happen is I can anything I sort of miss out on during the day that I haven't done or couldn't do, I can catch up with later, which is a, it can be dangerous because it's like you don't want to be working all day as such, you know, on and off. But it just means that I can take a couple of hours out during the day and pick it up in, you know, later in the afternoon because, you know, once the kids are in bed or whatever. So it can be tricky. And because I've got my phone and my laptop and my iPad and all that stuff, you can end up, you know, still answering emails in the office or whatever. Uh, sorry, in the house. Um, and I can also get situations where I'm, I'm on holiday and I'm doing the odd bit. It's not as simple as a clear cut thing. And that's mm. purely because I think in big companies, it's very easy to sort of stick your auto reply on and not respond for a week because that, you know, someone else will pick it up or whatever. But if you're by yourself, it's a bit difficult. So I try and at least respond to people and say, you know, I'm, I'm away this week or I'm on holiday and I'm back next week. And most people are then, oh, okay, cool. No problem. You know, but it can be tricky. Yeah. It's, it's important to switch off. I'm starting to do that more in the evenings now, you know, I'm getting to bed earlier and trying to switch off a little bit more. Did you used to be like before you got that house with the, you know, with the outdoors office, did you used to be working indoors where the kids were? Yeah. The, um, in the last place, <laughs> the last place we were renting, it was only about 10 miles away from here in Wiltshire still. It was a little house and there was a tiny little box room upstairs. So I was just at the end of the sort of, uh, there was a sort of loo at the one end and I was at the other end. It was a tiny, tiny little room. And we had a two, I think it was a two and a half meg internet connection. Lived there for four years and it was just the most horrendous. Yeah. I, I mean, I was trying to do webcasts and I was trying to do, you know, video calls with teams in India, trying to help them out with stuff. And it was, it was tricky. I got through it and it was fine, but there was just, there was one story that was um, when I was on a conference call. And my daughter, one of my daughters, uh, needed the loo. <laughs> so you're sort of trying to do a conference call with a team of people and, you know, pay attention. And then she's standing there sort of jumping up and down next to you because she needs the loo. <laughs> so we had to do this crazy thing where I had to go and get her to get the potty from the bathroom and bring it over. And then she's peeing and then I'm trying to, and it was just, you know, and then you have to sort of do that conference call thing where you sort of, even though you've sort of heard what they've said, you go, sorry, you broke up then. What was that again? <laughs> uh, and then, you know, while you can quickly get rid of this stuff. So it's, it's juggling a few things. Um, but yeah, that was tricky. And then when, when we moved into the new place, 
um i got like virgin fiber put in and just you know bathed in this <laughs> uh 200 odd megabytes of uh data uh, but my but the the building out the back wasn't we hadn't planned anything for it yet so i was actually in what is now our dining room so i was sort of in the front of the house and that was tricky as well because it was a bigger room and it had i could have more space in there but i was sort of occupying a a usable room of the house which meant we sort of had to eat out the back and i was you know, again, it was easy for me to be on a conference call and the kids come in. I remember one, uh, I remember looking out of the, because it was, it, they're sort of bay windows at the front. So you sort of look out on the garden, the front garden. And we, we're on a little road, little side road, cul-de-sac. And I'm sort of in the house and um, I think my wife was upstairs or something. One of the kids had got outside and she was outside the front. And I sort of, you know, work, I'm on this conference call and I look out the window and there's my sort of three-year-old daughter on the other side of the road standing near the, <laughs> near a hedge and I'm like oh my god so I'm sort of pause run out <laughs> grab her bring her back in so yeah it was uh it was interesting but, but having the office out the back is uh it does make it a little bit easier to concentrate excellent and you mentioned like like years ago then you were selling products shareware have you been tempted to do anything like that since um no not not in that way I mean it's if the models change so much now I mean I have I did do an app for myself or for us which was quite a nice experience, actually, because it's always good. It's the whole cobbler's um, kids' shoes type problem. You know, you never get the chance to write your own apps because you're doing it for everyone else. But it's also having a purpose to write an app, which is always the more interesting apps. You know, it's, it's a bit artificial if I suddenly went, oh, I think I need to write a Instagram clone or something. Whereas this was actually an app to help the kids uh, with their reading. So I wrote a really simple app called WordTin. And it's basically a whole bunch of words that you can put in this sort of list and then they come up on the screen with a nice color background in a different fonts and you can sort of swipe through them and there's a little eight ball to randomize them. And if the kids get them wrong, they go to the end of the queue. And, and that really helped my second to oldest daughter. Um, and that was one where I thought, oh, you know, I'll put it up and I'll stick it up for 149 or whatever. But interestingly, you just discover that, you know, apps are very hard to discover. They're very hard for people to find. They're very hard for, to engage with people. And, you know, there is that, that thing of you've got to pay 149 if you want to try it. So, um, I think I'm probably going to either make it free or make a, do a free version and then maybe a, an in-app purchase to sort of mm. add, more, add more features or something. But it's a good experience to go through. Um, yeah. And, if I, you know, yeah, and, and that, that, would be, that would be the way that if I got back into that sort of stuff, that, that would be what I'd do. It would be for a purpose. And I think it's probably going to make more sense now if I do any more apps that they'll be children, you know, child, kids related. Yeah. So that sounds like a, a nice sort of side project aim yes. rather than a trying a financial aim which is, yeah well, uh, yeah exactly yeah. i was never i was never gonna it was never gonna be one of those oh my god i've got a million pound app idea or something it doesn't matter you know in in this game it's like well if i've got my own apps out there that's that's a benefit anyway because it it shows people that i'm doing it myself and you get you get the experience yeah uh, do you have any other side projects um no any open source stuff i do so with the stuff i write in javascript with this product titanium you can write your own modules and you can write interfaces and you can write components. So I do a few of that. I do, I do a few of those. So I've written a few components that just sort of help people um, pull data from remote servers and manage it a bit better. And, but that's all, it's all free. It's all open source. And, and again, that's another thing that I didn't mention earlier. That's another um, thing that helps. It's another part of the jigsaw. You know, it's, the, it's, getting your, it's getting people out there using your stuff and being aware of your stuff. And you know, the, your open source tools end up being used in other people's apps and with other companies, which is quite nice. And that, again, grows that awareness. And how about the social side of it? I mean, maybe because you've got 
you're at home and you've got the family so close, uh, isolation isn't an issue for you. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, it's it's changed a lot, I think, and I think the the, the internet and the web has changed in terms of tools like Slack um, in helping you get around that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it got to the point I think at the end of when we were sort of finishing the first version of Bouncing Fish, I was working from a little, literally like a little shed in the in a back garden at my in-laws' place because uh, we just had our first child. And so I was there and I was literally by myself in this little room, tiny little porter cabin type thing on a pretty slow internet connection. Um, and I think pretty much Twitter was the only thing out there, Twitter and Facebook, you know, and Facebook's usually your friends and Twitter's just everyone else. Uh, and so that felt very isolated and very alone and very different. Um, but but what's happened now is that you're, you've got all these other tools, you know, there's all these different little communities with Slack and things like that, that, a lot of people see as an issue and I see they can be, you know, quite um, invasive sometimes in terms of the time they take up. But Slack is actually pretty cool in terms of making me feel like I'm part of something else. Um, but the other nice thing is that I'm getting involved with meetups. So I'm actually helping this company that I've got a retainer with, Accelerator, who make titanium. Um, I'm helping them organize meetups. So I travel a little bit around to you know, Amsterdam and France and Madrid. And this week uh, I'm going to Atlanta for a couple of days to do some talks there. And that's a nice way to get out there. I mean, that's always, even when I worked for someone, it was always a nice thing to go to a conference or to go to a meetup and see other people and realize, you know, there are other things out there going on um, that you, you actually are better than you think you are at certain things because you get that imposter syndrome effect. And it's quite nice to have that interaction as well. So definitely going to conferences and uh, meetups helps. Wicked. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself. Make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. So what have you got for me? Okay, so the first one is I once contaminated a crime scene when I was a youngster. <laughs> okay. The, the second one is I was once on a live TV talk show with my wife or girlfriend at the time uh, where, she asked, where she, she asked Paul Young how he kept it up in the 80s. And we also recently discovered a hidden cellar in our house, wow. which contains some old wine, which we managed to sell and make a few bob with. Wow. So what was the talk show? Uh, the talk show was the Terry and Gabby. Do you remember the Terry oh and Gabby show? Oh, my God. Show? Yeah. Uh, and we were based in our office in Southwark. And she's a big Paul Young fan for some reason. Uh, she'll kill me for saying that. And she found out he was on this talk show. So she contacted this show and said, yeah, I'm a big fan. And they're like, yep, yeah, cool, come along. And the way these things work is when you arrive, you get set questions. Or he will, get, he will get asked some questions, but these are questions that you will be, you can select from, okay? So I think the question, the exact question was, how did you make your hair stick up in the 80s? Okay, because he had spiky hair. So she said, I'll ask that question. So we go in and we sit down and you're all, and Chris Evans was producing it. He was wandering around in his sort of trench coat at the time. And they put you in a certain spot because they need to be able to pick out where you are, you know, because it's all live. And so basically she's, you know, getting really excited about this. And she makes the fatal mistake when they say, oh, we've got a question from Hannah, who's one of your biggest fans. And she made the mistake of, I think she ad-libbed basically. So instead of just asking the question, she ad-libbed. And she said, uh, oh, I've been a big fan of yours. I even had my hair like yours. And he's like, oh, all right, all right. And then she says, so my question is, how did you keep it up in the 80s? <laughs> Um, now the, now the, the problem, so of course everybody bursts out laughing and Gabby Roslin starts almost crying and Terry doesn't know what to do with himself. But the problem with these questions and answers thing with these shows is that the guest knows the questions. So the guest has already got a prepared answer. <laughs> uh, he, he's expecting the answer of how did you make your hair stick up in the eighties? 
And his prepared answer was, not washing it helps. (laughs) (laughs) So, So... so he said, so she said, how did you keep it up? In the, how did you keep it up in the 80s? He says, not washing it helps. Almost like straight away as like an instinct. And the whole place just starts, just breaks down. Um, and so that was, that was the story. And then afterwards, um, he came and sat next to her and they had a glass of champagne or whatever. And yeah, she was all quite, quite giddy about the whole thing. But it was hysterical. We got it on tape. We got it on tape. I, I don't know where the tape is, but yeah, Brilliant. it was very funny. You contaminated a crime scene. Uh, yeah, so this was at school um, when I was in secondary school. It was one of those schools that backed onto a playing field and you had these double doors that go out onto the playing field. And our, our class was the class right next to the double doors on the playing field. Um, so basically I'd gone in to class and we got to our, our room and it was me and another guy called Sean and we got to the class and it was locked and we were like well doors locked you know it's, it's sort of minutes to the class or i think we were just on time we were the first people there and, the, and the, you know the doors are normally open doors normally unlocked so we were looking inside we couldn't see what was going on but we looked you could see that the windows were open the windows that backed onto the field so i said well let's just go through let's let's get in and unlock the door from the inside so we went round and went onto the grass climbed in the window started looking through drawers and cupboards to find the key to open the door. There was a stationary cupboard, went in there. We were touching everything, you know, <laughs> looking around. And then suddenly we hear this banging on the classroom door and there's some mm-hmm. teachers there shouting and pointing. And we're, we don't know what's going on. Eventually they open the door because they've got the key. And what had happened was there'd been a break-in the night before and the police were coming to take fingerprints. <laughs> and we'd basically ruined it by putting our fingerprints everywhere so they couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and and you found a hidden cellar. That's um, that's a, that sounds like something from an Enid Blyton story. Yeah. So the place we'd moved into uh, was built in 1922, and this house was one of the first houses built here. We bought it, and we were renovating it, and we're still doing stuff now. Um, but basically, most of the floors seem to be sort of solid. Um, it's had weird extensions done to it, but there's a there's some floorboards in the living room, and there were some floorboards under a little stairs cupboard or near a stairs cupboard. And we were ripping it all up to do carpeting because there were a couple of breaks in the floors. And in ripping it up, we discovered that there was a bit more space under there than there should be. And it looked as if a, a, a door or something had been sealed. So when we took all this out, we discovered some steps and we went down and it was a small room. It wasn't huge. It wasn't like a huge across the whole thing, but it was a small room. There was some old newspaper bits and pieces in there and bits of wood and all the sort of rubbish you'd find down there and bits of rubble and things. And in the corner was a small crate and in the crate was a couple of bottles of wine with dust all over them that looked pretty shabby and it was a bottle of, uh, I think it was Merceau and a bottle of Gevray Chambaton, a couple of Burgundies. And we got them valued and they were worth a few thousand pounds and we sold them. What? Okay. (laughs) All of these are very convincing. You're a very good lawyer. Um, you see, the thing is, is that I know someone who moved into a house last year and found under the floorboard some wine. So maybe this is... But it wasn't worth anything, but they did find wine under the floorboards. A crime scene... A door, a door to a cellar. Oh, I don't know. Crime scene... I don't... Think. I don't, would you climb through the windows at school? One of the, I think, I think the the poor young one is real. In which case, I don't think 
I don't think you have a hidden cellar. You're right. We don't have a hidden cellar. Yes. Oh man, yeah. that was a good lie. <laughs> you wish you did. Yeah, I know. That's what my wife suggested it because she's always want. She's always loved the. I mean, she's still. We haven't. We haven't done anything with the floors yet, but we do have a, a slight hole. We do have floorboards in the living room, and there is a a dip with a little hole. So I think she's still, you still know, hoping. hoping that there's something under there. But yeah, that's her dream that we find this hidden cellar. Uh, Excellent. Now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Um, I think money, managing the money is the key thing. Um, I've, I've sort of learned that now, but it would, save, it would save somebody the hassle of going through it with, you know, what we went through before. Um, it's keeping things simple and managing the money. When I say managing the money, the biggest thing I hear from people, especially freelancers, when they get started and some that fail is they forget about taxes, they forget about VAT, they forget about all those things. Um, and it's just being more frugal on that side of things. So my, my policy now is when I get paid by somebody, I stick half of it in the bank. I just take half out and put it in the bank, you know, whatever the check is, whatever the payment is, um, because that's going to cover things like the, the VAT, it's going to cover corporate tax. It's gonna, and, and if there's anything more that I can put, I'll do that as well. It's just putting as much away as you can so that you've got that. Um, you don't get that issue when the tax bills come in um, that you haven't got the money because that's the biggest killer. Excellent. Jason, thank you so much. Uh, you can find links to what Jason is up to at beingfreelance.com, which includes his own podcast, by the way, which he didn't mention, but it, it exists, right? Yes. Yeah, that was something we started this year. So there's a, a an iOS developer called Ben Dodson, um, Dodo Apps, who I follow for a while on Twitter and sort of followed me back a couple of, a year or so ago. And we, we have very similar attitudes towards clients and projects and development and things. And I just messaged him sort of just after Christmas, you know, new year, new ideas and said, do you fancy doing a podcast? So I had an old domain name called The Check Shirt, um, which was all about, you know, the, the classic stereotype developer always wearing check shirts. Um, and I, I got the Twitter account and yeah, we basically decided to, and it was literally just us every two weeks. We just do a Skype call and just literally waffle for two hours about <laughs> Apple, about tech, about projects, about clients, about budgeting, about, you know, how we approach work. And that was the sort of theme. It was all about freelancing, the freelance life plus tech plus you know, all those things you know, it could be about projects. It could be about getting paid. It could be about chasing invoices or whatever. Um, and it's good. We just get to talk for two hours. We record it and put it up. So it's yeah, good it, does, it does sound like two blokes having a nice chat. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Uh, so there'll be a link to that as well. So go take a look, have a listen to that as well. And of course, uh, how you can reach out to Jason as well. Um, while you're there, follow the links through to the YouTube channel and sign up to the newsletter. But um, Jason, thank you so much. All the best being freelance. Thank you. Thank you.